The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The ad hominem fallacy is just that, a logical fallacy that discounts an argument because of the person who's doing the arguing. Okay? Also, the future is unknowable, and the past is not necessarily prologue. Stipulated. All of that is stipulated. You'll see where I'm going. In fact, crazy people can sometimes be right. Every hypochondriac in history has died of something, often a disease, sometimes being hit by a trolley. The poet Ezra Pound was both paranoid and followed by government agents. Both things were true. In fact, we have phrases for things that are almost always wrong, but occasionally correct, right? Phrases that harken broken clocks and blind squirrels. All that said is so that I can put it out there, so that I can concede in advance the limits of the following observation. And the following observation is this. The idea that Representative Devin Nunes has information that blows up the Russia investigation, that Devin Nunes has the secret memo that proves the FBI was in the bag the whole time, the heretofore suppressed piece of information that is, quote, troubling and, quote, would shock the American people, according to Republican Congressman Mark Meadows. The idea that Devin Nunes has just blown the case wide open. I can think of one other instance that even approaches the exculpatory value of Devin Nunes's document. It's my cousin Vinny in the shower. Holy shit. You got it, honey. You did it. The case cracker. Me in the shower. Uh, I love this. That's it. If you've not been following this caper closely, here's what's going on. The Republicans on the Intelligence Committee saw the FISA court warrant, which led to surveillance on the Trump campaign. Surveillance that, by the way, has led to Flynn being indicted and Manafort being indicted and Flynn pleading. So maybe there was something there. Let's just put that out there. Okay. Republicans who want this investigation to go away would like it if it were the case that the evidence for the investigation being opened in the first time was entirely based on the Steele dossier, and the Steele dossier was nothing more than an inaccurate political hit job. But that doesn't seem to be what's actually happened. It might be what they want, but what seems to be the fact is that the FISA court considered a lot of things. Among them was the Steele dossier. And no matter the provenance of the Steele dossier, it was in many places accurate. It was Yes, damaging to Trump. Opposition research is paid to be damaging to Trump, but damaging because it was accurate, not because it was inaccurate. And what Nunes has done, according to those who've seen this memo that he's put together, is to render his impressions of the FISA court warrant, eliding the things he doesn't want to emphasize and emphasizing the things he'd prefer to be elided. Even the promise of this document, call it the Nunes summary, the Nunes cliff notes, even the promise of the Nunes cliff notes, don't promise anything greater than this. How would you like to see a version that explains why the FBI surveilled Trump through the prism of Devin Nunes? Wouldn't you like to know what this looks like through the Nunes gaze? And what a gaze it is. Here's a Nunes refresher. 
He's the chair of the House Intel Committee. One day in March, gets a text message in the back of his car. CNN describes what happens next. It was Tuesday night here in Washington, D.C., when Chairman Nunes was riding in a car with a staff member. That's when he got some type of message on his phone and abruptly got out of that car and into an Uber. He then seemingly disappeared into the night. into the night and into the White House, or at least the White House grounds. He's briefed by someone at the White House about what happened or that person's version of what happened. Armed with this highly sensitive information, he immediately informs his House colleagues. No, he does not. Okay, he at least reads in Adam Schiff, the Democratic head of the Intel Committee. Nope, he holds a press conference. And then he goes to the White House and tells Trump what he found from a Trump staffer. And then when he's leaving the White House, he holds another press conference. Now, in these press conferences, Nunes is not exactly arty articulate. I have seen I have seen intelligence reports that uh, clearly show uh, that... Uh, the president-elect and his team uh, were, I guess, at, at least monitored and disseminated out in intelligence in what appears to be raw, or, or I shouldn't say raw, but uh, intelligence reporting channels. As best as I can say that until I actually get all of the information that we've requested. The upshot of all this traipsing and Ubering and press conferencing was to create such confusion and embarrassment that the House Ethics Committee began investigating Nunes. But 26 minutes before that inquiry was announced, before it was made public, the Nunes knew about it, Nunes said, I'm stepping away from the Russia investigation. Here was Paul Ryan's reaction at the time. So Chairman Nunes has offered to step aside as the lead Republican on this particular probe, and I fully support his decision. So now this guy, this Nunes, this previously embarrassed, ethically compromised member of the Trump transition team executive committee, by the way, and, you know, I probably shouldn't say this. I'll tell you what Washington reporters who talk to representatives all the time say. Nunes is not that smart. I'll say it. He's not that smart. He's among the dimmer members of Congress. Look, I don't know if it's true. Seems true. Someone in Congress has to be the dumbest one. And it's not one of these things where the accusation is just trotted out wantonly to besmirch a foe. I mean, that insult is not leveled at Trey Gowdy. It's not leveled at Will Hurd, both Republicans on the Intel Committee. It is constantly said of Nunes. Just thought you should know that. But what really is stupid is this, putting any stock into any memo that Devin Nunes says reflects what the FISA warrant said. His bullet point unverifiable impressions, given his history, credibility, and capacity, Hashtag release the memo. How about hashtag release Joe Pesci from the shower? On the show today, I spiel about how to save money by acting like the goddamn king of England. But first, you know Democrats have a real uphill climb in the midterm Senate elections, not counting Minnesota's special election. Only eight of the 33 seats up for a vote are possible Democratic pickups. That is forcing them into a defensive posture. It is also really, really unlucky I argue here, you will hear me say it's about a 1 in 500 shot, but I have an actual math expert to tell me my calculations might be correct, but my reasoning is wrong. Lucky for me. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you look at the forecasters of what's going to happen in the 2018 elections, you'll see generally predictions that Democrats will retake the House. There was quite a kerfuffle when the generic ballot dipped a little bit. A couple weeks ago, generic Democrats were doing much better than generic Republicans. Now in one survey, they're doing seven points better. Here's the thing. There are no generic Democrats. There are no generic Republicans. Well, I've met a few Republicans. Some of them are kind of generic, but actual Republicans go up against actual Democrats. So let's take with a grain of salt what they say about the generic ballot. But now let's move to the Senate. And in the Senate, it might be true that there is large anti-Trump animus. It might be true that a blue wave might be hitting us. It's just that the seats in the Senate that are up for vote are so horrible for the Democrats. There are 100 senators, and every two years, a third of the Senate, either 33 or 34 seats, go up for vote. This time around, the Democrats are defending all but eight of the seats. So the Democrats have to defend 25 seats and the Republicans therefore have a chance to pick up 25 while only having eight of their own up for vote. Now I was thinking of this in terms of math. It seems unlucky for the Democrats. In fact, it seems fabulously unlucky. I wanted to put a number on it. So joining me now is Jordan Ellenberg. He is a professor of mathematics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. His author, of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Jordan, hi. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I want to not be wrong about this. I have some math. You're in danger. You're yeah. in danger of being wrong about this. That's <laughs> well, why I'm here. Yeah, first I want to stipulate, and I will stipulate, it's not just math. It's not coin flipping. It's actual seats, and if people win or people lose, it's because of a number of factors like... In Virginia, it was coin flipping. Yeah, it was coin flipping. That's right. It came down to they put a ball in a film can, and then they picked out the film canister with the uh, correct name because... I don't know, film canisters, they, they have so many of them the lying around. The last film canister in the state, no doubt. Exactly. By the way, okay, we could even diverge on that. What's a better mathematical way to break a tie, do you think? Oh, I've got a lot on this. But yeah. if you want it to be 50-50, I think the film canister is as good as any other. I think okay. it's just optics. 
Let's talk about just the math involved in the Senate. Now, granted, it's not just math. It's people running for office. But what we've essentially done is in a Senate that's almost 50-50, it's 51 Republican and 49 Democrats, we've chosen 33 seats at random. We'll asterisk that because it's not random. It goes in order. But we've chosen 33 seats. And therefore, if the seats up for bid reflected the general composition of the body, we'd get something like 17 Republicans running and 16 Democrats running. But it's far from that. How far from that? Seems right. like very far That's from that. That's what you would expect if it was a random yeah. sample. Yeah, state. yeah. That's right. So should we be looking at this and saying that it is really unusual for the Democrats? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. First of all, what is the reason for there to be a lot of Democratic sitting senators in those states? Well, the reason is that six years ago, Democrats won a lot of elections. So one aspect of what's going on is that there is a kind of built-in reversion to the mean, if you like, where if you have a lot of seats to defend, it's because you have a lot of seats. And if you have a lot of seats, it's because you did well last time. So, I mean, the way this thing is structured is that the better you do one time, the more challenge you face holding on to those gains the next time. Okay, that's an excellent point. And there's another point, I think, adjacent to that, which is we're not just randomly picking 33 seats every two years. We're going in order so that all the seats are up for bid. And if there's one set of seats where it's eight Republicans and 25 Democrats, it'll even out. Maybe the next one will be the exact opposite, or generally you're going to have more uh, Republicans defending their seats should the chamber stay roughly even. So it'll all even out at the end of six years. Well, of course, we don't know it'll all even out, but what's definitely true is that, as you say, the seats in the Senate cleave into these three groups, Class 1, Class 2, and Class 3. Yeah. Um, and the ones that are up for election in 2018 are the Class 1 seats. So here's the thing. Those groups of Senate seats are actually pretty different in terms of how Democratic-leaning or how Republican-leaning they are. I have to admit, I never knew this until you asked me this question. But another reason that a lot of Democrats are sitting in seats to be defended in 2018 um, is that the seats that are in Class 1 are pretty Democratic seats. I mean, of those uh, 33, you have 21 states that Obama won in 2012 and 12 states that Mitt Romney won. So that's definitely uh, leaning towards Democrats. So in other words, Democrats have a lot of seats to defend in 2018. They're going to win a lot of those seats, and they're again going to have a lot of seats to those same seats to defend in 2024. I just added six in mm -hmm. my head. Congratulations mm -hmm. to me. Um, because a lot of those states are solidly Democratic states, and in the short term, they're going to stay Democratic states. So they have a lot of states to defend, but a lot of them are, in some sense, easy states to defend. All right. That's true. I take that all in stride. Yet here's the math, and if anyone could take my math and tell me I'm right or wrong. Everything you said is true, but the notion of we have this particular assortment, I just wanted to try to put a number on it. So it's like, stop me if I make any mistakes. We have... And, and for my purposes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume a 50-50 Senate, even though it's 51-49. I couldn't do the math with 51-49. But we have 100, 100 balls, 50 are red and 50 are blue. We've just chosen 33 balls. Like I said, a likely outcome would be something like 17 red balls, 16 blue balls. Instead, we get 25 blue balls and 8 red balls. For my calculations, and this is only based on if it were a coin flip, if the Senate really were 50-50, to have... Eight blue balls out of those 33 would be a one in 618 chance. To have seven blue balls out of those 23 would be something like a one in 2,000 chance on down until I calculated the odds of there being eight or fewer Democratic seats 
as a one in 500 chance, just if we were mathematically assigning the chance to to this Senate election and say, what are the chances that we have such a disparate blue balls or Democratic seats up for bid? Right. So how unlikely is it that the Democrats would have such a big blue balls problem? <laughs> yeah, I knew. I, you said it. I was thinking of t- turning it into blue chips and red chips, but... So here's the, here's the thing about that computation, which is, you know, like a lot of mathematical computations we do in politics is correct as a mathematical computation, but uh, sort of hideously irrelevant in terms of uh, the political realities, which are that mm. when we talk about, okay, I flip 30 coins or I pull 30 balls out of an urn, in probability, balls are always kept in an urn. I've never mm. even seen an urn. I don't even really know what one is, but that's where you keep your balls that you pull them out of. Uh, when you do a selection like that, you're always making an assumption that's called independence. You're yes. saying that what happens on one coin flip doesn't affect what happens in the next coin flip, which is very true if you're talking about like two coins that you have in your hand. It's very false if you're talking about two states in the same election. So I, I you know, thinking back on this, I was thinking back to an infamous article I wrote for Slate in 2006 about uh, why the Democrats were not going to regain control of the House of Representatives. Uh, Spoiler, they did regain control of the House of Representatives. And it was exactly because I was asserting too much independence between those seats. I I was correctly saying, boy, the Democrats have a lot of seats they've got to win. There's a lot of close seats, but the Democrats have had to win like 75 or 80 percent of them in order to seize control. And I did the same kind of computation you just did. Boy, what's the chance that if they flip that coin 30 times, they're going to get 25 heads? Pretty low. Right. Pretty low. But of course, states are not like coins. They are at the mercy of kind of national trends that push you in one direction or the other. And so it can happen. And gosh, it seems like in recent elections, it's happened quite a lot, that one party or the other will just have the win behind it. Um, they'll win every close race, not by luck, but because that's just the direction things are going, that races that look close based on polling fundamentals as we understand them um, are actually not that close because there's an, an unmeasurable national mood that's pushing in one direction or another. Yes, yes. This exactly describes a big flaw in many of the models. Not 538's model, Nate would always talk about this, but in many of the models of the last election, where the Princeton model, for instance, says, well, she has, Hillary Clinton has a slight lead in Pennsylvania and a slight lead in Michigan and a slight lead in Wisconsin. And so, yeah, she could lose one or she could lose two, but the odds of her losing all three when she's an 80% chance winds up being whatever it is, like some something like a 96% chance that it won't happen. But that's not how to calculate it. When, when the circumstances of one state flipping uh, present themselves, those circumstances are often there for another state. Exactly. And I think how to model that is a hell of a lot more subtle than how to model a computation in one state where you have a bunch of polls and basically you're averaging those poll numbers together. It can get a little more fancy than that, but it's no great mystery what you're supposed to do if you have a lot of polls in one state. The question of how those states are related to each other is much more subtle, and that affects how we think about how unlikely is the present difficult-to-defend situation of Democrats that you discussed. In other words, how unlikely was it that the Democrats did so well in 2012? It also affects what you think is likely to happen in 2018. How likely is it that the Democrats or the Republicans are going to kind of run the table on those close races? Right, that's true. So maybe... 
maybe my calculation would be a little more accurate if we said, all right, our system of democracy was invented yesterday and we are going to randomly decide which Senate seats, like truly randomly decide which Senate seats come for vote uh, in 2018. And then we got this random assortment out of a 5149 Senate that it would be uh, 25 Democratic seats and eight Republican seats. That's maybe closer to uh, my math being uh, applicable. You're doing, you're doing what a good applied mathematician always does, which is when the model doesn't match reality, we just say, how would reality have to change in order to <laughs> That's conform awesome. more closely to my handsome model? <laughs> That's a great You've point. You've got the spirit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, by the way, the really, I think the really interesting election to look at is people were so focused on Trump winning the presidential election, the Electoral College, while losing the popular vote in 2016, that actually I think maybe not quite enough attention has been paid to the fact that the Democrats, I think, really missed a chance with those Class 3 seats. You know, just as I said, the Democrats had a very good election in right. 2012, which right. means that they have a lot of seats to defend now. Yes. In 2016, you're looking at people who were elected in 2010, a huge Republican wave election. And that is a situation which I think going in, you would say the Republicans had an unusually large and unexpectedly large number of close seats to defend. Because those class three seats, the ones that were up in 2016, that is not such a predominantly Republican collection of states. But right now it is uh, represented by a predominantly Republican collection of senators. So, uh, you know, I hate to say it for Democrats, but the real opportunity for them just passed in 2016 and comes again uh, in 2022. Right. Um, that's a great point. Like Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who just just as those Wisconsin polls got the presidential election wrong, they thought that Russ Feingold would take back his seat. But no, it was Ron Johnson. And in fact, other Republicans who were either in a toss up or maybe slightly leaning Republican state like Burr in North Carolina and Portman. Toomey in Pennsylvania. Right, Toomey, Port. All those Republicans won. That's an excellent point. And so the next time around, we might be saying, oh, look at all these class three seats, so overwhelmingly Republican. There's a reason for that. Call me back on four years and we'll do this again because I think that is the right group of seats with which to ask this question. By the way, do you think, I don't know how you would put a number on it, you know, 538 was saying that Hil- that Trump's chance of winning was like, you know, in the 30s, Hillary's chance, I forgot the exact thing, it was like yeah. 65. Do you think he was right? Like, he might have been right. He might have had that perfect. So this is a great question, another the deep philosophical question. This is how you assess it. You, you can't assess that about one event. You right. can't, because what happened, happened. You don't get to run it a thousand times and see if it happened 350 out of those thousand times. You know, one way, there's two ways of looking at what we mean when we talk about a probability. We could mean, like with coins, oh, if I do this a thousand times, how many times is it going to come heads? Okay, with elections, that's not really what we're doing, right? Because there is no single election we're going to run a thousand times. Usually, we're not even going to run it twice. Yeah. So, if it's not measuring that, what is it measuring? Well, most people would say it's measuring your degree of belief, Right, some measure of like what you know about the situation. And of course, what you know is going to change between January and October. So it would be very weird if those odds didn't change. It's like when you complain that a politician's position on something changed. Well, if new things happen, why shouldn't it change? It would, be very, it would actually be very weird if it didn't change over time under new conditions. <laughs> yes. When given new information, I change my mind. What do you do? That's a... Famous quote. Right. It's somebody's pithy quote, but I forgot who. Yeah. All right. Jordan Ellenberg is the author of How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. He's a professor of math at University of Wisconsin-Madison. He keeps his powder dry, his light under a bushel, and his balls in an urn. Thank you, Jordan. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Experienced a poignant moment this morning. I went to register my oldest son for his after-school program. I know, you're probably crying already. Well, it's the last time I'm going to do this. He's in fifth grade and moving on. And his after-school program, many of the offerings are quite popular. And because they're quite popular, the parents clamor to get first dibs on who gets what programs. Be they swimming, you know, limited space in the pool, or the uh, capoeira Minecraft thing they've got going on. It's quite a progressive environment. So I was thinking back about the first time that I did this, and it was this date or around this date in 2012. And around this date in 2012, when he was in kindergarten, it was like 12 degrees outside. And back then, the method that the school used to register for after school is all the parents would line up outside the school, the doors would open at eight, and then first come, first served. Well, because we love our kids we started lining up early. And I would talk to parents who'd been in the school for a while and they said, yeah, like three or four years ago, people would show up at 7.30. Then two or three years ago, they started showing up at 7.45. So I, back then then in 2012, here's the point where it got to. I was there at 6.45 a.m. trying to get the kid a spot in swimming and I was 45th online. Now, this was stupid. This was insane. This was also 2012. And while it was 12 degrees outside, which could happen at any point throughout history, the 2012-ness of it meant computers existed. I'm going to take you back to then. We had computers then. Internet-connected computers. So I said, why don't we use these computers to sign the kids up for after school? There are many a program that could do it. Most of the parents were on board. Most favored it. The people who were first and second in line did not. There were some counter arguments. What about the parents that don't have computers? In 2012, this was more of a thing that you could say. But so many other parents said, well, maybe that's a consideration. But what about the parents that don't have another parent there in their apartment who could uh, stay with their other kid while, while they're online at six o'clock in the morning? And it, anyway, it seemed like a good argument to do this by something other than computer. But I couldn't just be a top of my head argument. I surveyed the other parents in the school. And then I called other schools that had after-school programs, or I emailed them. And I talked to the principal, and the principal said, you should present your information to the woman who runs the after-school program. It's not run by the school. And so I did. And I marshaled a lot of information. I went to the PTA meeting, and I said, I'm doing this. Does anyone want to be part of a committee? And the parents liked it. And the head of the after-school said, you're right. We've long thought of computers. I suppose the time has come. So I affected change. The point being, I'm a white male. It's easy for me. No, the point being, that people would compliment me. People would say, wow, that was really giving of yourself or what you're doing is great, what you're doing for the kids is great, what you're doing for the rest of us as parents is great. Uh, you know, I was, I was complimented and told to think of myself in a good light. And of course, this is why I'm sharing the story with you right now because I expect to receive some kudos through your earbuds. But that's not why I did it. Why I did it was I thought ahead. Here I am. My kid has five more years of this school. There's after-school sign-up twice a year, spring and fall semester. Not every day will be, you know, 12 degrees, but it's always going to be a two-hour commitment to wait on that line, to get on that line. Two hours, twice a year, five more years. I have 20 more hours spent doing this. So if I spend whatever it is, six, seven, eight hours getting some facts, calling some other schools, presenting my information to the head of after school. I'm really saving myself a lot of time in the long run. It wound up being a smart move just in terms of time. I think we always make the mistake of how much is our time worth. Here's an easy calculation. What's your salary 
take half of the yearly number, that's your hourly rate. You know, that's based on the 40-hour work week and 50 hours a week. But if you make $80,000 a year, your rate is $40 an hour. Now, it's not totally accurate. Maybe you'd love to work more hours. Maybe you are just chained to your desk and you'd love to work fewer hours. But if, if, if it's about right, if you've reached about an equilibrium where you're working the number of hours that you want to work because you need the other time for other things, uh, that's your hourly rate. And in fact, it's probably a little high because the hour you spent going to work and also most of us work more than a 40-hour work week, but just use it as a rule of thumb. And if you know this, anytime someone asks you to do something, you can easily calculate if it really is worth your time. Sometimes you do things worth that, that aren't worth your time just in terms of dollars and cents because it's a nice thing to do or because you would enjoy it. But there are lots of things where we, where we are asked, would you rather have the convenience or would you rather have the time? And I think we feel guilty if we'd rather have the convenience. In fact, the fact that we call it convenience is incorrect. It's not convenience, it's time. So I will give you a tangible example. Ironing. Ironing to me is an economically wise choice. Pressing my pants costs $5. Now, if your time is worth $40 an hour, if you're at the $80,000 a year, 40-hour work week, so if your time is worth $40 an hour and someone wants to charge you $5 to press your pants, not wash and press, just to press your pants, which you could do with an iron, here's what's really going on. At $40 an hour, that's 80 cents a minute. It takes you four minutes to iron your pants. The job should be $3.20. It is worth $3.20 based on your hourly rate in life to press your pants. And if the dry cleaner is charging five, that is not worth the time. However, laundry. I used to like laundry. We had a laundry machine in our building, the basement of the building. I'd bring it down. Didn't take that long. Fold it in front of a football game. Love to watch football on the DVR. It's the best thing in the world. You build up a little credit, zip past the commercials. You know what? You can't engage in social media, caterwauling about the game. That even makes it better. So I like that. But now I'm not allowed to have a laundry machine in my home. So I could go out and do my laundry, sit there, wait for my laundry. Or, you know, remember when it was 2012? Well, now it's actually 2018. There's a guy who'll take your laundry, he'll pick it up, and he'll give it back to you. Sure, they'll charge. But knowing my hourly rate, which I don't want to brag, it's currently above $40 an hour. It makes sense. The whole deal costs $40. It would, I would be spending much more than an hour doing my laundry. Now, I know that people hear that I get a guy doing my laundry. People like my very own producers, and they look at me like, what are you, the goddamn king of England? And that becomes even more pronounced when I tell them this. I get my laundry back, and they've made a mistake. Yeah, it's washed. No, it's not shrunken, but they're terrible at sorting the socks. Yes, the socks are paired, but they're not paired with each other. Well, they are paired with each other. They're just not paired with the same sock. And I'm not even holding them to the standard of what this white tube sock is not exactly that white tube sock, although that is possible. And good laundry people in the past have nailed that one. I'm talking about pairing a white tube sock with a gray sock with little black and yellow honeycomb type insignias throughout it. Bombas former sponsor, perhaps future sponsor, makes a nice sock. They put the white one and the gray one together, and this drives me crazy. And again, I'm so privileged. I'm the goddamn king of goddamn England. No, that is not the way to think about it. This, oh, by the way, my shirts, they fold them wrong. What do you mean they fold them wrong? They fold them so I can't see 
the V, if it's a V-neck or a crew neck, they fold them backwards, or I can't see the logo on the front. So I got three gray shirts. I'd like to know if it's my Mountain Goats t-shirt or if it's my pub with Adam Ragusea t-shirt, which is now a collector's item since Adam Ragusea is no longer hosting the pub. Anyway, they're doing it wrong. I have to refold my shirts. I have to resort my socks. So this is not me being privileged and me being picky and rich guy me picking on poor guy, guy who sorted my laundry. This is me paying for a service to save time and it not saving time. What they've done, it has nothing to do with take pride in your craftsmanship or I paid for this, goddammit. What it has to do with is the fact that I've made this choice to get some more minutes with my family, or maybe to sleep, or maybe to play World of Warcraft. It's not to play World of Warcraft. It's to do the things that are important to me. It's so that I won't turn to my children and say, actually, I can't cook dinner for you tonight, Blue Apron, current sponsor. I can't cook dinner for you tonight. We only have 30 minutes. I had to stay at work the extra half hour. It's to spend time. It's the value of time. I valued my time in such a way. The socks are missorted in such a way. It just screws with my time money evaluation. So this has been a very long spiel and a very long way of saying I'm not a good person. I'm not a bad person. I just think I am a person who logically values his time and you should be too. Also, white socks are not that hard to sort. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who pays a guy $48 an hour to settle his hash. The gist was also produced by senior producer Mary Wilson, who pays a guy $12 an hour to cut her jib. She hired him because she liked the cut of his jib. Then she finds out that that guy paid another guy $15 to cut the jib cutter's jib, which raises the question, who will cut the jib cutter's jib? The answer, Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, sideline jib cutter. The gist, I'm not the goddamn king of England. I am, however, lord of the dance. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.